So we've been working through this series, The Life of Abraham, who actually finally today becomes Abraham. I've been waiting for this day because as you're working through this man's life, constantly reminding yourself that it's Abraham, 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 and now we reach the point where it becomes Abraham. So we, we reach a point of balance. We always refer to him from there on throughout the Bible as Abraham. For those of you who are new to the Bible, uh, Abraham is one of the key uh, stepping stones in God's engagement with this world. He's one of the, uh, the champions, the patriarch of the faith in the Old Testament. In fact, if we, take, um, if we ask ourselves a question, how does God engage with this world? What we see is that Abraham is one of the key initial stepping stones for God to engage with this world. He speaks to this man. In fact, what we see, and we reach a climax today actually, because what we see is that God increasingly speaks to this man. And and really today is the day where it becomes massive uh, in terms of him speaking with this man Abraham. And and setting in store uh, and engaging with one man who becomes, if you like, the starting point for the whole of the nation of Israel, and therefore the whole of the development of the message of God into this world, which ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, born a Jew, coming out of that stream of the engagement of God with this one man in ancient history. Hopefully what we've been able to do just in those few words is is at least give us in our minds uh, an understanding of the significance of this man and the fact that God has been engaging with this world right throughout its history. It starts so quietly. One man. You know, one man out in in an ancient city and then in the desert God speaking with one man. What is the outcome of that? The outcome of that is right across the whole of this world. Today, there are situations just like this where people are speaking about the message of the Bible, about the message of Jesus, and there are those people who are responding to that and believing in the living God. Because God, in ancient times, spoke to one man. That's the significance for us today. That's why it's important. And it's important how we understand how that develops. There's a lot for us to understand in this. The question that I think we can put over this challenging text, actually, because it is a challenging text for a 21st century reader, is the question, what happens when God engages? I mean, really breaks in. Really breaks in. You know, we can think about, we're in danger sometimes of thinking about the idea of God. Uh, And I'll say it carefully so that it, it doesn't sound... Well, actually, we can think disrespectfully. We can think in a kind of reducing God to something to be observed, something to be sort of brought down to our level so that we assess God. What we are talking about is the living creator 
being outside of our understanding who is willing to limit himself to use the language of humanity to engage with a man and, and make himself accessible. What happens when the power and the authority of that God is limited and breaks into our lives? Because that's what happens in the life of Abraham right at this point. What we understand as we come to this chapter is that Abraham was 99 years old at this particular point in time. That gives us a fascinating little picture because the previous chapter we've been, as we looked at it last week, we were looking at the life of uh, Sarai and Hagar and this continuous story. In fact, it's been building up right the way through the whole of this uh, this journey that we've been going on through the life of Abraham. We've got this constant challenge. His wife is not able to have a baby. Sarai is, is barren, as it says, right at the very beginning. 86 she was in the pre, or he was in the previous chapter. He's now 99. 13 years have gone by. 13 years, you know, that is, for many of you, that is half your life, half your life, more than for some of you, less than for others, <laughs> but it's not a small amount of time, is it? 13 years, there has been silence. What's happened in the previous chapter? There's been the promise of God that it's going to work out. God has been speaking repeatedly down through the chapters, Sarai is going to have a child. Last week, we were looking at the fact that Abraham and his wife, or his wife particularly, come to the conclusion, God is not going to deliver, God is letting us down, therefore we will intervene, have my slave girl, uh, and produce a child through my slave girl, because I own her, I'll own the child, that's the answer to the problem that God can't deliver. Thirteen years of silence, and now a teenager in the household, Ishmael. Is God listening? Is God working? Is God doing? I think that is a massive challenge for us, isn't it? Because you and I, we work on, we work on a time scale which is bound by our existence, our lives, a few lives, you know, a few years, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, a few years, aren't we? And we think that everything, and we assess everything, and we judge everything based on our understanding of time. What is fitting into my life, and how is it working out in my life against my time scales? And we forget, as I've said before, that silence is very often the workshop of God. When the silence, do not assume that God is not working. Do not assume that God is not fulfilling everything that He has promised. Do not assume that God is not delivering what He said. It's just that His time scale might not quite coincide with what we think is right. And that is exactly what Abraham finds out at this point in time. Because God speaks to him again. In fact, the way that this is delivered, the way that this is 
uh, portrayed to us is this is the climax, really, of God's spoken engagement with Abraham. He says more in this section than he said in any of the previous sections. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. In each of the, he makes another covenant promise. Uh, and then if, if we've been watching, if we've been observing this, the promise that is made here is exactly the same promise as he, he's already made. He's just reinforcing it. He's making it clearer. He's saying to Abraham, which become, becomes Abraham in this little section, this is how it's going to work out. Your wife, Sarai, who becomes Sarah, is going to have a child. I've not forgotten. Thirteen years ago, do you remember when you tried to solve my problem? I was there. Before that, when I made the promise, I was there. And now, I'm going to speak to you. God does not remain silent at this moment in time. He engages with him and he says, right now, this is how it's going to work. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for your generations to, to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Here's the promise. I'm going to be the promise-making God. I'm going to make a covenant, an agreement with you. I don't know what it must have been like for Abraham at that point in time. Think of the most powerful person that you can imagine in your understanding. Who, Who is the most powerful person? Imagine if that most powerful person, that most imposing person, that, that person who fills you with awe as you look on, just comes to you and makes a promise personally to you. Now multiply that by a billion times. Imagine what it would be like if the God who created all things breaks into your life and says, here is my promise to you. I'm making a promise. I'm making a covenant. I am the one who is making the promise to you. Everything is dependent upon me to deliver this. I am making a promise to you. What does that promise look like? It looks like a promise which is not just restricted to Abraham, but a promise that continues to all of his descendants. I will be your God. And the promise that I make to you to be your God is the promise that I make to your descendants to be your God. In other words, you are mine. What a great promise that is. Isn't that incredible that God would make that kind of claim on Abraham and on all that follow? What happens when God engages in that way? Two things happen. First thing is this. God renames us. Look at what happens to Abraham. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. 
For I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give you a land, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. He renames him. Names, certainly in the ancient world, are, are not just, if you like, a tag. <laughs> you know, our names are like a tag, aren't they? They're, they're, they're what differentiates you from me, a name. That's all it is. It's a tag so that I can speak to you and you know that I'm speaking to you rather than the person next to you. I use your name. That's all it is. Not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, to name had an astounding significance. You know, some, some of us have names which, which have some meaning. You know, maybe they're a traditional family name, perhaps. Something which uh, you're named after. Somebody who's been a loved member of the family, perhaps. So that's some significance. There's very few of us that have a name which, which carries something of character and purpose. Who we are. You know, that's actually how many names are. You know, if your name is Smith, don't know whether there's anybody by the name Smith here, but if your name is Smith, historically, that's because way back in time, one of your descendants was a blacksmith. <laughs> it's part of your identity. What about Abraham? When God named him, it had profound significance. He's making a statement, I am naming you as the father of a great nation and many nations. I am naming you, the whole of your being is entwined in what I am declaring you to be. Massively important to be named by God. In other words... Abraham continues, he has a heritage, he has a continued presence. Abraham becomes, if you like, connected with that whole nation. He has ongoing significance. It's actually what we all look for, what, what we, we want. How many of us want to come into this world, disappear, and just be forgotten by absolutely everybody. We don't want to be in this world and just have no significance. We know that we have something written into us that wants our lives to mean something. What a tragedy. What an, a, a stomach-churning tragedy that this past week has revealed in that life that was Jimmy Savile. When, their f when his family put that headstone, looking out to sea, declaring him to be a philanthropist, declaring him to be um, a charity worker, de declaring him to be all of these good things. Why do we do that? 
Why do we want to have that significance? Because written into us, we don't want to have lives that are nothing. We don't have, want to have lives that are empty and meaningless. We, we know that we only live here for a short time. We know that we're like a wisp of, uh, of smoke that is here for a moment and gone. We want the significance. We don't want to know that we meant something. And yet what we see is the outcome of what we thought it was is so dramatically different. And in the space of months, that headstone is now smashed to pieces, figuratively and literally. And you and I know that if we really look at our lives, if we really look at who we might want to be, we know that our significance and the reality if it was actually exposed, if, if, who, if our attitudes and, and the inner thoughts were actually fully displayed, it would just be like that. It would be there. We would, would perhaps have some good into the future, maybe. But the reality is that we are not the people that we would want to be really. And yet God says to Abraham, this man who last week we saw, was in a messed up family situation. God says, I'm going to give you significance. Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? God says, I'm going to give somebody who is messed up eternal significance. Does God still do that? Does God still do that? Is God still that kind of God? In John chapter 1, we read this. The fulfillment of this, actually, or the outcome of this, is that the relationship that is forged with Abraham, with God, opens up and opens up and opens up and opens up so that those who sit within that covenant relationship also have a relationship with that God. Ultimately, to the point where Jesus comes into the world and John says it like this. He says that there's going to come a point in the future where how great... Sorry, John chapter 1 John chapter 3 says this, but also says in his, in his gospel first uh, chapter, he says this, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. How, what kind of love does that display to us? What kind of love does God show to us? This is the kind of love He shows to us, that we should be called children of God. In other words, we bear the name of a child of God. I'm the child of my father and my mother, you are the child, the f child of your father and your mother. You bear the name. You are that person. Those who believe in Jesus Christ become the children of God. They bear the name. They bear the identity. It's as though God is, in a sense, <laughs> renaming us. In exactly the same way as he first renamed Abraham. He, we become a new identity. We become a, a, a new person. 
We become the children of God where we once were, were rebels and aliens and outside of that relationship we become the children of God. Now, that's great. But what makes it even more amazing is that I know and you know that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be the children of God. We put ourselves far more like Abraham, with a messed up background and chaos and crisis all around us. And yet God says, you, I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to rename you. And it's filled with significance because it is no less than my name. You become my child. You become part of my covenant family. A true encounter with God renames us. The second thing that we see is a true encounter with God marks us indelibly. God says to Abraham, now, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go away and you're going to circumcise every male in your family, including yourself, including Ishmael, including all of those who are part of your family, including all of those who have been born into your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh, do you hear that? My covenant in your flesh, my promise in your person, the reality of you is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He's broken the covenant. Play on words there, actually, in the original language. <laughs> kind of really uncomfortable play on words. Anyone who isn't circumcised is cut off. Interesting, isn't it? But there's something else, isn't there? You know, we're circumcision. Why? I tell you what, it's irreversible. You are marked but not marred. It is irreversible. And the reality is, you know about it, but it is not seen by everybody. Not in the mark. There's another circumcision that continues. Where God says the real circumcision that takes place, the real circumcision, the real cut, the real mark that is a mark but a not a marring, is a circumcision of the heart. He says that to exactly the people who are being circumcised physically. Deuteronomy tells them, real circumcision, will cir or the Lord will, your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul 
and live. Wow. Real circumcision is a cut of the heart. That's what happens when God speaks. It's a cut of the heart. It's an irreversible, indelible mark which we bear throughout our lives and into eternity. We cannot reverse it. It cannot heal in a sense of being reversed. It is just there. It is that constant reminder. And it is not about something that is outside of us, like something that we can put on and take off. It is a mark which is permanent. Paul says exactly the same in Romans. He says real circumcision, you know, you can, you, we can go down the line of, of as, the, as the people of God started to confuse this, they, they started to re- think about the, the, the order in the wrong way. They started to think about the mark as being more important than the belief. And we, 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 re- we read a few weeks ago, Abraham believed God. Paul later reminds his readers, you need to remember that he believed God first and then God marked him with circumcision. The problem was that as time went on, people started to see that as more important, the mark as more important than the belief. Paul reminds his readers, you know, he he believed first and then he got marked as a reminder of the promise that God had made. Don't get confused, he's saying to his readers. No man is a Jew if he is, o- if he is only, if, sorry. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. It's about what's happened and cut deep inside dealt with us deep inside. It's about God dealing with us in such a way that we know that we have been changed. Here's, <coughs> excuse me. It's one of these observations that I would say that I've recognized in many of the conversations that as people have come to know God, as faith has begun to grow in their hearts and in their thinking, that they have been changed, that, that we realize that there has been an un- unalterable change that has taken place. I'm not saying that we always like that change, because we don't. I'm not saying we always feel comfortable with that change because we don't. But when God deals with our hearts, it is unalterable. It's a constant challenge and it's a constant battle. But we find ourselves in a position where we are saying, I am, I am, I am marked. God has marked me. God has dealt with me. God has changed me. So we have the reality that when God breaks in, 
He renames us. When God breaks in, he marks us. Is it all about us? Because there's another little section that we read, if you like a warning, that if we don't keep the covenant, we're going to be cut off. Any uncircumcised uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant, it says in verse 14. In other words, if we live in a way, if we decide that we live in a way which is not according to God's desire and according to God's will, we're going to get cut off. I don't know about you, but I know for my life, I have not lived in the way that God would have me live. Where is my hope? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. He says this in verse 8. I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. He becomes the confirmation of just these promises so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. What's that verse saying? It's saying this, that there is going to come a realization that the promise is not made to a people group. The promise is made about a person, Jesus. It's made about somebody who comes and does two things. He lives a blameless life. That's what the covenant is demanded. That's what the covenant demands, a blameless life. But then, he also gets cut off. He does. Isn't that remarkable? The covenant says, you must live according to the promise that I'm making. And if you don't, you're going to get cut off. Jesus lived according to the promise that was made. And then, he gets cut off. How does that work? He fulfills the very promise enshrined in both. He says, I will deliver against that and I will become the one who is cut off. What does it mean to be cut off from God? What does it look like? Or rather, what does it, maybe one answer is to say, what does it look like to be in relationship with God? That's the first starting point, isn't it? If we understand what it looks like to be in relationship with God, maybe we can get a handle of what it means to be cut off from God. It looks like Abraham being in relationship with God. It looks like God speaking. It looks like communication. It looks like love and compassion and, uh, and oneness. It looks like the kind of promise that God makes us in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit's presence, that He will be with us and dwell amongst us. What does it mean to be cut off? 
it means to be separated. For communication to be broken, shattered. For God to turn his back on you. Remember those occasions, maybe when you were little? More devastating than anything. It was not when perhaps you were being shouted at, but when the back was turned. How dreadful the idea that God might turn his back on us. Imagine what it would be like for God to cut himself off from us, to turn his back on us, to reject us. What would that feel like? It feels like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it feels like. They're the very words that Jesus said as he died on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why have you cut me off from you? Why have you separated me from you? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus says. The great news is found in this. Why? Because God has said, if you don't keep the promise, I will cut you off. But he didn't fail in keeping the promise. I know he did both. He keeps the promise. He keeps the covenant. And then he is cut off so that you and I can be the ones who don't keep the covenant and yet are not cut off. (laughs) We receive both. We receive the fact that we become fulfilled in his covenant keeping and he bears the cutting off that by faith we escape from. He's cut off so that we are not cut off. This is how it works. This is the kind of promise that God roots now into this conversation with Abraham, which becomes fundamental for you and to me. I just want to close by asking you this. Has God spoken to you in a way which has cut into your heart? Has God spoken to you in a way which you know has just got a hold of you and he has engaged with you? Then do not, do not let go of this truth. If that has happened, you cannot be cut off. You cannot be cut off. He will hold on to you because he has already been cut off in our place. And maybe, maybe if we're sat here today thinking, I deserve to be cut off. I deserve to be separated. How can I not be separated? Then we might come to God and say, please, save me. 